The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hi, honey. You feeling any better? A little bit. Guess what? What? Your grandfather's here. Mom, can't you tell me I'm sick? You're sick. That's why he's here. He'll pinch my cheek. I hate that. Maybe he won't. Hey, how is this sicky? Huh? I think I'll leave you two pals alone. I brought you a special present. What is it? Open it up. A book? That's right. When I was your age, television was called books. And this is a special book. It was the book my father used to read to me when I was sick, and I used to read it to your father. And today, I'm going to read it to you. Got any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. Oh, well, thank you very much. It's very nice of you. Your vote of confidence is overwhelming. All right. The Prince's Bride. By S. Morgenstern, Chapter One. Buttercup was raised on a small farm in the country of Florin. Our favorite pastimes were riding her horse and tormenting the farm boy that worked there. His name was Wesley, but she never called him that. Isn't that a wonderful beginning? Yeah, it's really good. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, June 6, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today. We're 519-661-3600 is a number you can always call to join in on the conversation. And be sure to, f- to feedback us, and that means, you know, write us through feedback at justrightmedia.org to tell us what you think of the show, what you'd like us to do, what you'd like us to talk about. Today our show is at least 10 stories tall, right, Robert? And boy, do we have some tall ones. <laughs> hey, for my part, I plan to... Uh, that's the theme of the show today, by the way, stories and their role in our lives and um, from, I guess, almost ancient times right up until the present. Because for my part, I plan to talk about a few of my pet peeves about what's happened to certain television shows in the past. I'll be doing that in the second half of the show. This isn't about Firefly again. No, no, no. Okay. Not, not even. Well, it might come up. I might say it once, but no. Um, okay. Plus a brief uh, history, believe it or not, of Martian movies a history, and of, of the literature that accompanied them and how they affected our real history. Uh, I saw an article in the Post. It was kind of interesting. And finally, I plan to close our show near the noon hour today. Believe it or not, Robert, with my own fairy tale. Should be an interesting one. Does it have a happy ending? 
We don't know yet, and that's an interesting question. That's yeah. almost the key to the fairy tale. So, Robert, what's your story? Mine is about fractured fairy tales. Oh, Anybody boy. who remembers Rocky and Bullwinkle know what I mean by that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, again, how stories um, teach us morality. And uh, I read something once that uh, the two industries that always uh, do well in depression are, do you know what they are, Bob? Oh, movies, movie theaters, don't yeah. they do well? Yes, you're right. One of them is food. Right, the food industry, everybody's oh. got to eat. And, of course, the other one is entertainment. Yes. Entertainment always does well in depressions. Was that the right answer? Or That's the right answer, oh, okay. yes. <laughs> you, you get a star. Uh, so how do you explain that? I mean, how do you explain um, or understand our never-ending need for that kind of entertainment, even in the face of depression and uh, financial problems? Now, stories, uh, both fiction and nonfiction, by the way, and, and when we mention stories on the show today, we're, we're talking about both the fiction and the nonfiction kind of stories. And they all lift the spirit. That's what, that's what we want. They give us guidance. They show us heroes and villains and conflict and resolution. And they're a way for us to live vicariously through the travails of others. They are morality plays. And while we don't really like being told directly how to think and behave while we're being entertained, we sometimes often allow ourselves such direction in stories, uh, using subtle uh, subtleties. Now, the analysis of storytelling as an art form is part of the branch of philosophy called aesthetics. It is, to me, the most interesting branch, as I see it, as the pinnacle of thought, the pinnacle of life. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, aesthetics, or creativity, is at the top. Art and entertainment could be considered in many respects to be the goal of life, enjoyment, entertainment. After all our needs are met, we often turn to art and entertainment as a luxurious benefit of a life well led. And after a hard day's work, many of us just want to chill out and be told a story, not unlike a kid getting ready for bed. We read a book or watch TV or go to the movies or listen to the radio or in some other way, shape, or form, expand our lives by seeing life through another person's lens. Art and entertainment are the backbone of a culture, I think. The stories we involve ourselves in become a common focal point of discussion when we're with friends, except for that other pa pastime. It is perhaps the most uh, ubiquitous topic of conversation amongst friends and even strangers. Do you know what I mean by that other pastime that people talk about around the water cooler, Bob? I don't want to guess. What oh, is okay. it? Well, you and I had know nothing about it. Oh, okay. Sports. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no wonder I couldn't get it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, have you heard the phrase, seen any good movies lately? Of course, that's, sure. that's, that's, the con that's what people talk about. Um, well, of course, it's been a theme of this show for a while that... Oh, yeah. Um, you know, the very culture that we live in is a lived story. People pick a story, and, and the cultures we've had over the years are based on the big stories. Well, I know a book that was called The Greatest Story Ever Told, and it was about the life of Jesus Christ, right? Mm -hmm. And, of course, there's the Bible and the Koran and very many other, uh, you know, um, ain't more ancient types of stories, including mythology, ancient Greek, etc. But all those stories come from the culture in which they're told, and they tell us a lot about that culture. And uh, I've always wondered what people would think about our form of entertainment today, say, 100 or 200 years from now. It's funny, when you said the greatest story ever told, the first thing that came to my mind was The Lord of the Rings. Really? <laughs> well, that wasn't the name of the book, though. <laughs> that was no. actually the name of that book. 
Yeah, I think it was called The Bible or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, so the purpose of story and art uh, is not just to entertain us. It's often used to impart a morality. We all know that um, on the reader or the viewer. Uh, whether overtly or covertly, almost every good story has some moral element to it, of course. It could be in the plot, such as when the good guys beat the bad guys, or it could be in the characters, someone of high moral characters, somebody we want to emulate. Um, for example, when a protagonist is virtuous and competent, or a protagonist is weak and shallow and incapable of dealing with life. And of the two, of course, give me the competent Captain Kirk over the everyman, Willie Loman. The moral element could also be in the overarching uh, story. Now, you know this, this, Bob, especially from long-standing television series. The overrunning, um, overarching theme of the story is often the morality, like in Star Trek, uh, the moral, I think, in that is that the universe is knowable and conquerable and holds a promising future for mankind. That's an overarching morality that Star Trek portrays. Well, absolutely, and it was critical to Gene Roddenberry's view of life. Yes, yeah. And, uh, of course, that's what is reflected still today, I think, for the most part. I mean, there's always those off <laughs> scripts that are written here and there, but uh, certainly to the sense of life that Roddenberry had. Oh, yeah, a very positive sense mm -hmm. of life. And that's that's what I get out of television shows, too, is that even though they may not be perfect in a moral sense, if they have a positive, uplifting sense of life, you know, and they and catch my attention. Star Trek gets unfairly criticized from time to time for being like a happy show. It's not a, a real-life kind of show, like, say, a show I'm going to be talking about next half hour, Battlestar Galactica was, you know, the heavy, heavy kind of programming. And yet that's not true. A lot of tragic things happened in the series. So, some of it was terribly tragic, right? Oh, yes, yeah. And yet it was still an uplifting show. Yeah. It had that positive sense of well, life. Well, that's the thing. Is even though you would have an episode which may have been a little morose or depressing, the overarching theme of Star Trek as a television program was positive. Oh, sure. And a positive sense of life. But morality can also be created in, remember, non-fiction as well as fiction like Star Trek. How a, a war, for example, is historically portrayed as often a matter of perspective. How do the North Koreans speak of the Korean War? How do the South Koreans speak of the exact same war? Was the American Civil War a war to free the slaves? Or to be more accurate, a war to keep the Union together? You know? Mm -hmm. it, uh, the, the victor often writes, writes the, the story. story. <laughs> In recent newspapers, we're witnessing several stories unfolding from various moral perspectives. To the editors of the Toronto Star, and I know that you're going to be talking about this later, too, maybe, Bob. To the editors of the Toronto Star, Rob Ford is a disgraced, drug-abusing womanizer who uses his position to feather his own nest, while to a more conservative press, and to myself included, Mayor Ford is a competent mayor who has become the target of the liberal Marxist left who have le used lies and innuendo and unsubstantiated claims to try and rid him from office. It all depends on who's telling the story. On last week's show, I mentioned how the majority of stories from the past 4,000 years have instilled a culture of sacrifice in Western society. From the attempted sacrificial murder of Isaac by the father of Judaism, Christendom, and Islam, Abraham, that is, to the um, crucifixion of Jesus, to the battles of the Mohammedans, we have been indoctr indoctrinated to believe that our lives belong to others, be it a god, a tribe, a dictator, or a state. The prevailing morality is one of slavery in the West. Slavery to others. It's not, wasn't always so. If we go back to ancient Greece and Rome, we see stories where the gods not just accept men to be uh, sacrificial, but also strong, intelligent, and courageous, and beautiful. Such virtues are evident in the art of the day. 
The statues are of the strong and the perfect and the beautiful. The stories are of victorious battles over weaker enemies. Today we're taught that intelligence is a vice. Strength means violence all the time. Heroism must be suppressed. And beauty is often the refuge of the vain. This is also evident in our art and stories, where misshapen primitive forms pass for great sculpture, where random splashings of paint mixed with garbage pass for great works of art, and where stories of the mundane and the meek pass for great literature. 2,500 years ago lived a slave called Aesop. Now, whether or not such a person existed is not relevant as the stories attributed to him are. I could say the same for Abraham, Jesus, or Muhammad. Whether or not these characters existed is secondary to the stories told about them. Now, Aesop, apparently unaware of the morality of sacrifice, although ancient Greece was not without its morality of sacrifice, just as Socrates, Aesop penned over 600 fables, short and concise. They presented in obvious fictional form a truism. At the end of each fable was a moral, which the reader was meant to either take as something of value or to ignore. The choice was always there. Unlike the religious texts we are used to, uh, full of commandments from a vengeful, vengeful juvenile, spiteful God, such as, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ass. <laughs> or was it wife? <laughs> Get those two mixed up. Aesop presented a subtle truth to be pondered, pondered and acted upon only, if reasonable, to the listener. For example, one good turn deserves another. And here's one of my favorite Aesop's fables. The dog and the wolf. And use it as an example of a good moral. A gaunt wolf, almost dead with hunger when he happened upon uh, a house dog who was passing by. Ah, cousin, said the dog. I knew how it would be. Your regular life will soon be the ruin of you. Why do you not work steadily as I do and get your food regularly given to you? I would have no objection, said the wolf, if I could only get a place. I will easily arrange that for you, said the dog. Come with me to my master, and you shall share my work. So the wolf and the dog went toward the town together. On the way where the wolf noticed that the hair on a certain part of the dog's neck was very much worn away, so he asked him how that had come about. Oh, it's nothing, said the dog. This is only the place where the collar is put on at night to keep me chained up. It chafes a bit, but one soon gets used to it. Is that all, said the wolf. Then goodbye to you, Master Dog. And the moral is, better starve free than be a fat slave. Mm -hmm. And with that, I think we should just go into some fractured fairy tales. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> These are from Rocky and Bullwinkle. I love to play horseshoes. I bet I get a ringer the first time. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> well, I'll get it this time. Oh, but what are you trying to do, son? Oh, I'm trying to play horseshoes, Dad. Here, let me have those. Wow! How'd you ever learn to do that? Practice, Junior, practice. I smell a moral coming up. Correct. Practice makes perfect, which brings to mind a fable entitled The Coyote and the Jackrabbits. Most rabbits are so poor that they're forced to live in a hole in the ground. But Hasty J Rabbit is not most rabbits. Uh, Wallace? You're cold, sir. Yes. Did you take that truckload of money into the bank? I did, sir. Good. Now, bring a bottle of my finest carrot juice, vintage 69. I'm afraid there's no time for that, sir. You're due at the track. 
In case you're wondering, Hasty J. Rabbit made his fortune at the races, not by betting, by running. Seven days a week, Hasty outran the dogs, but years of this killing pace began to take its toll. I've had it. I can't run another step. Without crossing the finish line, he was finished. Hasty, your racing days are over unless you go away for a nice long rest. It's either that or an operation. Come now, Doctor. Let's not be splitting hairs. So off they went, deciding that the peaceful quiet of the desert would be just the thing. Wallace, uh, my carrot juice. Sorry, sir, they don't grow carrots in the desert. But they did grow coyotes, big, mean ones. I'm your next-door neighbor. Hasty considered this to be a rather strange way of greeting one's neighbor, and he became more convinced of this when, during his bath... Don't forget to wash behind the ears, neighbor. And even that night when he went to bed... Night, neighbor! This went on for three weeks until... The desert isn't agreeing with me, Wallace. It's that ruffian coyote, sir. He's making a nervous wreck of you. Well, we might as well pack our things and go back east. Oh, let's not be hasty, hasty. Suppose you engaged the coyote in a legitimate fight and thrashed him soundly. I'll wager he'd bother you no more. This sounded logical, so Hasty instructed his faithful servant to deliver the challenge. Tis done, sir. He agrees to meet you in the ring two weeks from today. Early the next morning, training got underway. I'm afraid this is all a waste of time. I'll never be able to beat that coyote. You will with practice, sir. Just leave it to me. Their training program completed, the fateful day of the big fight arrived. I think I'm overtrained, Wallace. I can't even lift my hands. You won't have to, sir. I'll take care of everything. At the sound of the bell, the faithful servant grabbed a section of a nearby cactus, swung, and launched his master into the fray with such force that... So you see, my boy, it's quite obvious that practice makes perfect. It seems more obvious to me, Pop, that in this case, cactus makes perfect. By golly, Junior, I do believe you got the point. Uh, I got the point, too. Though I think there's <laughs> no more visual there. <laughs> um, so, it was a cactus, Robert. It, it was, was a cactus. cactus. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Actually, I just downloaded a, a whole bunch of Rocky and Bullwing. I'm looking forward to watching them from time to time cheap animation but you know something that was really well written for some some of their jokes are pretty corny and oh yeah and, and you had to know what was going on in the time too sometimes mm -hmm. the jokes would go over your head if you didn't know the history of the time or when they were done mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and there were always great references to canada <laughs> <laughs> and all the little features they had thanks uh, yeah. that was actually aesop and son which was one of their regular features that yeah. they had on there the fractured fairy tales was was another feature too which we're going to have some clips mm -hmm. from as well yeah aesop um, i mentioned one of his tales there and i don't always agree with all of his morals for example he had one um quote as in the body so in the state each member in his proper sphere must work for the common good not something that i would uh, necessarily agree with well he did say in his proper sphere 
each member in his proper sphere must work for the common good. Right. So what's the pro proper sphere? It could be talking like Adam Smith. You know, th th that's non-defining. Work for the common good. I think that's the sticking point right there. You never work for the common good. You work for your own self, rational self-interest. Yeah, and in so doing, you aid the common good, don't you? As a byproduct, but not as a primary. So here's some more better morals, I think, from Aesop. Or Aesop. Uh, I think everybody out there will uh, actually know these if they don't already um, attribute it to hey, somebody hang else. Hang on a sec. I got an uh, interesting thing. I agree with what you just said, mm. but what I was saying, do you think that that's what Aesop meant, if there is such a person? Is that idea consistent with the rest of his ideas, the way you just interpreted it? Um, right? That's what that's People have said that... Because you've told me Aesop's in the past that he's very kind of objective. Uh, yeah, so reality-oriented, so truisms about the mm -hmm. nature of the world and about human nature. See, so I would more be inclined to interpret that statement to the favorable, if you know, well, what, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I do. That's actually, all I'm yeah. saying. I agree with your point. Yeah, like but the invisible hand of Aesop. It's about Aesop, but yeah. we don't even know that he exists, let's face it. But the it. thing is that a lot of people have said that Aesop just simply um, is an amalgam of a sure. number of different people throughout history, and the fables are collected under that one under that name. name. Yeah, That makes sense. So there, there are some conflicting, some people there are, say that there are conflicting morals in his fables. Who decides when it becomes an Aesop's fable? Is there, is there somebody who looks after that Some kind of thing? Some guy in an ivory tower <laughs> yeah. somewhere, who knows? The dictionary Here are some uh, Aesop's morals. Appearances are often deceiving. Honesty is the best policy. I mean, these are phrases that we use every day. Oh, yeah. And we just don't attribute it to the proper person. And, and you know, when I heard some of them, I thought they were attributed to other people like Shakespeare, for mm -hmm. example. You know, you think, oh, I thought that, that was Shakespeare. No, oh, here's one. Every man for himself. We say that a lot. Yeah. You know, it's an Aesop uh, moral. Don't bite the hand that feeds you. United, Ouch, yeah. united we stand, divided we fall. Slow and steady wins the race. One good turn deserves another. Necessity is the mother of invention. Gossips are, oft are to be seen and not heard. He laughs best who laughs last. A man may smile, yet be a villain. I wonder if Aesop knew Justin Trudeau. Oh, boy. Uh, he who groans loudest is often the least hurt. A lot of politics today based mm -hmm. on that one. <laughs> and the last one, A too. lot of victims. And the gods help them that help themselves. Now, I think that Christians have turned that one around and says God helps those who help themselves. Right. But apparently it was an Aesop uh, moral. The okay. gods mm -hmm. help them that help themselves. Now, after thousands of years of using a single collection of stories as our conflicting moral compass, uh, i.e. the Bible, We've reached an age where the printed word is no longer the sole dominion of priests and monks. And since Gutenberg's press and the Reformation, we've been able to step slowly out of the muck of self-sacrifice and craft stories of heroics and courage and competence and love, which have morals of rational self-interest rather than irrational self-sacrifice. Some of my favorite um, stories and artists are, of course, Ayn Rand, who has the uh, pinnacle fiction collection of rational, self-interested protagonists. Uh, the stories of Robert A. Heinlein, though I think that you disagree with me on some of those. <laughs> the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, several television shows like Firefly, there I mentioned it, Honey West, something you turned me on to, and Star Trek, of course, in all its incarnations, except maybe for the Enterprise, which basically sucked, and Star Trek V, <laughs> which was horrible. And while, except for Rand's works, these shows may be flawed and imperfect when it comes to the portrayal of a rational, self-interested morality, there are many snippets, pieces, episodes, characters which pass my test and make the story worth reading and watching. 
All I need to know about life I learned from Star Trek. That's not just a saying. It's actually a book and a famous poster. And the reason it's a book and a poster is precisely that that show did teach us morals. That one show had some of the best writers in Hollywood portraying competent characters in roles which told stories of heroics and bravery in a knowable, scientifically understandable, for the most part, universe. It was a show which can teach us many lessons. And here are some of the morals from that poster. The poster, again, is all I need to know about life I learned from Star Trek. Keep your phasers on stun. <laughs> this means to me that violence in self-defense need only be as violent enough to incapacitate your enemy and bring him to justice rather than just kill him. Jungle justice, as one local talk show ho host calls it. Um, although there are times, of course, it's necessary to set your phasers to kill, and the crew of the Enterprise did not hesitate to do just that when it called for it. Uh, except for that one episode called Obsession where Kirk hesitated to shoot that gas cloud which was murdering his crew. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. I yeah, <laughs> haven't seen that one in a long uh, time. Obsession. Obsession, yeah. Well, there you go. That's There's, there's the problem right there. Yeah, don't hesitate. <laughs> yeah. Live long and prosper. I've always loved that salutation. It showed... That's uh, a great one. That That's life... a universally kind thing to say. Yes. Life and prosperity are values to strive for. And they and you wish it on the other person. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations, or IDIC, is the motto of the Vulcan race, which reminded them of the value of diversity of cultures and their mingling. Unless, of course, you get a culture like the Borg. Or multiculturalism. Whose only goal is to complete <laughs> domination of others. Hmm, I wonder if there are any earthly parallels to the Borg. So, when going out in the universe, remember, boldly go where no man has gone before, as, to put it as Aesop would have put it, here's another moral from Aesop, do boldly what you do at all. Hmm. So, we've come full circle from Aesop 2,500 years ago to Star Trek of today, boldly going where no one has gone before, hopefully towards a more rational self-interested morality and not that, like, as I said before, the muck mm -hmm. of sacrifice. And that's all I have, Bob. I'm waiting to hear what you have to say about some of the TV shows you and, Bo and I both enjoy. Well, yeah, I have an interesting theme on that coming up. I also want to talk a little bit about those uh, Martian books and movies and history that I discovered there. So why don't we take our break right now, and when we return, we will be talking about some television shows that really upset me when they got cancelled, and others that should have been cancelled and weren't, and that kind of thing. And I uh, can't get into them very deeply, but it's going to be an interesting conversation. Back after this. Once in a kingdom there was a king who was such a great king that he was fit for a king. He was handsome and brave, his castle was paid for, and he had the pink slip to the royal carriage. He even had a swimming pool shaped like a swimming pool. But for all this, he did have one little fault. Oh, honey, dearest. Whom is it you wish, sire? My wife, the queen, that's whom. But, sire, you're not married. Oh, maybe that's why I can't find her. Yes, the king was absent-minded and couldn't seem to remember anything. He had forgotten to ever marry. Knowing that every king should have a queen, he discussed the matter with his prime minister. What shall I do? Get married. If I'm ever going to have a queen, I'll have to have some help. So saying, he took a wishbone from his pocket that he had been saving for just such an emergency, snapped it... <laughs> got the biggest half, and said his wish. Help! With that, there was a tinkling of tiny bells, a blinding flash of light, and a beautiful blue fairy appeared. I'm a magic blue fairy, and I can help you get a queen. 
I am all ears. I know, but I can still help you get a queen. Problems, problems. Why so many problems? It's the brakes, boy. Beautiful princesses just don't come easy in these fairy tales. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, okay. What's the gimmick with a wicked witch? I'll give you a magic word that'll make her disappear. And that is? Thundervogel. Wouldn't you know it? Me with a lousy memory. So, armed with the magic word, the king ran into the castle and... Ha-ha! Now, you wicked witch. Hold it. I'm the beautiful princess. That's the wicked witch over there. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Ha-ha! Now, you wicked witch. So, a handsome king who dares to enter my castle, eh? Well, just for that, I'll turn you into a toad. <laughs> Higgledy-piggledy, my black hen. Stop! What for? For I have a magic word that'll make you disappear. And it is, uh, uh... Well, get on with it. Uh, uh, uh... Vogel! It was a miracle. The king had remembered the word and the wicked witch disappeared in a cloud of green smoke. But so happy was the king by the fact that he finally remembered something, he completely forgot why he was there. Yippee! I remembered! I remembered! Weeks went by, and of course, the absent-minded king did not return to his kingdom, for he was unable to remember which kingdom was his. Finally, he chanced to pass a lovely young girl from whom he asked directions, and when she put her dainty finger to her chin to think over the question... Pardon me, but uh, I can't help noticing that you have a string tied around your finger. Uh, what's it for? To help me remember. Remember what? I don't know. I forgot. The girl, it seemed, was as absent-minded as the king, and needless to say, there was such a common bond, they fell in love. And so it was that, um, 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 uh, what's his name, married, uh, what's her name in, uh, who's it, and they lived, uh, oh, what you might call it, uh, life, happily ever after. I think that just about does it. Let's see. We've got one desk chair, black. Hey, that's my chair. Where are you talking One man. painting, cubist abstract. Okay, Sparky, I'll bite. Where's he going with my chair? Walter Whitebread, ABC TV. <laughs> Used to be a big fan of yours. Well, still am, I guess. The next uh, eight minutes and 36 seconds. Look, Walter, I enjoy a joke as much as anybody, but I gotta get some work done, so you wanna have him bring the stuff back in? You don't know, do you? Know what? Somebody from Current Programs is supposed to call you. I guess that's why NBC's number one, huh? <laughs> I uh, don't know how to tell you this, but you're canceled. What? What a canceled! Oh, I'm glad you're here. Come let me go. Oh, we gotta get out what of here. What the hell's going on? We got canceled. What? Look, I don't have time to explain it to you now, but in six minutes and fourteen seconds, we will cease to exist as television characters. Well, where's our furniture? What's happening to our view? Where's Red taking our view? Well, now there's no need to get your drawers in a bunch. Wait a minute. Drawers? An underwear joke? I made an underwear joke and we're still here. Agnes, I think there's something you should know. What? That the two of you couldn't figure out your nitwit relationship, so they're giving the rest of us the heave-ho along with you? You heard, huh? Yeah, I heard. If there's a god in heaven, he'll spin Herbert and me off in our own series. What is happening? Uh, all right, we still have a little bit of time left. Let's think. There must be someone who can help us. Yeah, but who? <sighs> Wait a minute, say that again. 
You mean... <sighs> That's it. Sai. Sai will know what to do. Come on. Get out. But Sai, what do you mean, get out? Get out. But you're our last who? But Sai, you're one of the biggest producers in the business. Come on. Hey, even I can't get people to tune in to watch what they don't want to watch anymore. Don't get me wrong. I love you two kids. But can you really blame the audience? Case of Poison Ivy's more fun than watching you two lately. Ah, what are you talking about? What about all the laughs we had? Yeah. People don't want laughs, David. They want romance. Romance? And romance is a very fragile thing. Once it's over, it's over. And I'm afraid for you, too, it's over. But it's not over. David and I are still friends. Yeah, we're buddies. Oh, goody. That's exactly what America wants to see. David and Maddie, friends. People fell in love with you two kids falling in love. You couldn't keep falling forever. Sooner or later, you had to land someplace. People cared about you two because you cared about each other. Even when you didn't want to care, you still cared. You couldn't not care. You cared until you couldn't care any longer. What do you say? Something about caring. You two were a great love story. Well, we can't just vanish into thin air. What'll they do without us? Well, don't worry about them. They'll be fine. What's going to happen to us? You know, I could be wrong. But remember what I said. Romance is a very fragile thing. Romance, huh? Romance. That's what they want? Romance? Romance. Come on, sister. We'll give them a little romance. Nice kids. Gonna miss them. <laughs> Believe it or not, Robert, that was actually from the final eight minutes or so of the five-year running Moonlighting hmm. with uh, Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepard. Great and, show. And we didn't even get to see the case they were working on resolved. They just canceled it. <laughs> that show was so unusual, and it kind of speaks to the theme coming up. But first, I understand we have caller Scott on the line. Hello, Scott. Are you there? Yeah. Hey, going? Thanks for uh, ha taking my call. No problem. Uh, I just had uh, an Aesop fable that I I'm interested to if you've heard before, it's one of my favorites. Um, there's a man and his son walking down the road with their donkey. And uh, a passerby says to the man, why do you make your son walk when he can ride on the donkey? And I'm paraphrasing, so excuse me. So the man puts the son on the, the donkey. Well, then another passerby says, why do you make your son uh, ride on the donkey? Is he lazy? Why? So he takes the kid off the donkey and puts himself on it and makes the kid walk beside him riding the donkey. Well, another passerby says, you are lazy. How dare you make your kid walk on, on the ground alongside you while you ride on this donkey? So when they get to town, they decide to just um, take everybody's uh, thoughts into consideration, and they tie the donkey's legs up to a pole, and the both of them carry the donkey themselves <laughs> their shoulders. Well, they approach a bridge... And the pole has so much weight that the boy loses control and the donkey falls over the side into the river. And the moral of the story is, if you try to please everybody, you might as well kiss your ass goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> favorite. And about Star Trek, I just want to make a quick question. Yeah. Um, one phrase from Star Trek that I'm sure everybody recognizes is, 
uh, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And I just wanted to ask you, do you think that that's always the case? Well, apparently we did a show on that. We just we, talked about that during the break and had a little conversation on that, Scott. Uh, we have actually talked about that very one uh, in, in length, you know. But uh, that, that was a that was a great uh, a great parable there. From Actually, I don't think that uh, when Spock died, saying the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, he wasn't even sacrificing. No, if you remember, That's Kirk correct. said to Scotty, "says If we don't have warp drive in thirty seconds, we're all dead." You know, I was going to bring that up in the first half of the show. There, where you're talking about it. Same thing happened with in the new Star Trek with uh, Captain Kirk's father. Oh, don't tell me, I haven't seen it yet. You have no in the, in the first episode. The oh, first okay, the first one. That's, where, that's where, three where years his, old. Yes, where his father sacrifices himself crashing into that ship to save Captain Kirk, the baby's mm -hmm, life, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't a self-sacrifice. He knew his wife yeah. and son would not survive. So there, those are examples that Rand would say were legitimate, quote, sacrifices. Sure, his although wife he wouldn't and, use that word. Because his wife and his son were values to right. him, and he wouldn't be able to live without those values. So that wasn't a sacrifice in that sense, yeah. But, Thanks, uh, Scott. Uh, yeah, it was a gr great story. Um... You know, but our op uh, that clip we just heard there from Moonlighting where they got cancelled, uh, you know, that's one of those shows, you know, you always have those shows that you get disappointed with when they get cancelled. But, um, you know, I thought there were great shows that killed themselves and should have been cancelled earlier. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Before they finished. And others that were cancelled but had great endings where they had to leave off because the writers were smart enough not to leave us hanging. And this is all about the story I'm talking about now, not ratings, okay? And I thought, like, Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, that ran two years, got cancelled, had a great ending, and it was a great, great series. I really played to the Terminator's uh, theme well. I really enjoyed Moonlight, which was a vampire theme, and I'm not a vampire fan. Yeah, that was a Canadian uh, production, wasn't yes. it? Yes, yeah. and I uh, can't think of the actor's name, but he's the fellow who stars in Hawaii Five-0 right now as McGarrett. What's his name? Oh, no, I can't remember. Oh, that's the guy who starred in that anyways. And, of course, Moonlighting. But the ones that really bum me out, i got to tell you, and, and I've talked about them on the show before, even at length, and these are the shows that I think kill themselves by maybe lasting too long or running out of storyline and not knowing where to go. And that was Heroes... Battlestar, Galactica, and Lost. Yes, the new remakes. Yep. And each of these shows started off so great. I even I remember doing a review on Battlestar on this show here, and it says, "Now here, there is a show that's raised the bar." I said in the first and second year, and then the third year came along, and oh my goodness, it, it just dumped itself in the toilet. Like it, it wasn't a positive thing anymore. It just became this negative, dragged down, you know, horror story almost. It was terrible. And, it was uh, morose. It was absolutely depressing. Right. I, I, I couldn't even get through it. And, of course... There was uh, no hope. Yeah, I guess that was the whole situation. What am I watching this for? And I think maybe that was the issue with Lost, too. You know, I, I gave my own theory of what the plot of Lost was when it was just still in, in, in broadcast. And this is, this is going way back to... Uh, uh, Ten years ago, right? Eh? No, no, 2007, when I, oh. uh, when, when I was doing it right here on the show. Show number nine, by the way, I gave a great interpretation <laughs> of the plot and lost. It had no contradictions in it. And I did, yes, entertain immediately that all it was was them dying, okay? And I said, but if that's the ending they pick, they will betray their viewers. Mm -hmm. Guess what? That's exactly right. You know that's something? the ending they pick, and I... I, I got lost on Lost. Yeah. So free. I only watched like the first two seasons. Couldn't watch it anymore because it was so repetitive. And um, near the end, uh, mind you, though, I, it, it didn't entertain me enough for two seasons. 
There was some good stuff in there. That's the thing, you know. But, and I, I, and then, I, then somebody told me to watch the ending, and I couldn't bring, bear, bear myself to, to watch it until about a year later. And then I got the last six episodes, watched them, and I'm going, oh, my God, I'm glad I got out when I did. Yeah. Because it was awful. You just don't want to go there, do you? You know, that's what I'm thinking. I would have probably rewatched a lot of the good parts of any or either of those series, but for the fact that I already knew how their storyline ended in this disappointing or predictable non-ending, you know? And uh, that, that's unfortunate because the first season of Heroes was a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Uh, the miniseries Battlestar Galactica was excellent, as were the, I would say, the first two seasons. Yep. And Lost was terrific for the first two seasons. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just don't know... You know, now here's the thing. Had they not had their poor endings and had they been pulled early, do you think they would have been become fireflies to mention the show I'm not supposed to mention? You know, in a sense of uh in the sense of their long lived popularity, people, you know, they almost become a cult thing. People yes. um watch them over and over again because they're not long, they're they're there, there's that there's that this little brief spark. Well remember Star Trek itself, seventy nine best episodes, was cancelled after three seasons. Yeah. And it became a, a billion, multi-billion dollar industry and such a cult <laughs> following that the world has never seen the like since. Interesting. But uh, anyways, that's all my complaint is about shows like that when they get canceled and or drag on too long. I would have liked to have seen longer versions of the other series, but who knows? If the plot had gone badly, I would have written the first two seasons off again. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, so I don't know. Anyways, let me get on to this interesting thing that I found in the National Post about... Uh, it was called Mars Attracts, written by Scott Van Wisenberg. And he talks about 135 years of red planet me- um, mania, both in books and in literature and in movies. And uh, interesting what some of the things he has to say. He says, Mar- and this was written uh, March 13th of 2012, so it's about a year old. He says, Mars, the most obsessed about extraterrestrial body in the universe, has come our way again. On March 9th, 2012, Hollywood unveiled John Carter, the first film adaptation of a famous series of Martian adventures written by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who also was known for Tarzan. The bizarre story of humanity's modern entanglement with the Red Planet began in 1877, when Italian astronomer Giovanni uh, Schiaparelli reported the existence of, quote, canali on the Martian surface. In Italian, that word can be mean both channels, which are natural formations, and canals, which are not. According to science writer John Noble Wilford, that ambiguity was never cleared up. The writer then reviews some of the book titles that were inspired by these proclamations, starting with British writer Percy Gregg, who, quote, brought out the novel Across the Zodiac, which tells of a man who builds a spaceship, visits Mars, and finds an ancient civilization. The book can be read online in its entirety at the Project Gutenberg website. Other titles he mentions are Henry Gaston's occult book Mars Revealed, 1880, C.S. Lewis's out of, uh, 1938, Out of the Silent Planet, Mm-hmm. But the significant author he cites was American astronomer Percival Lowell, who in 1895 released the first of a series of books proclaiming that Mars was inhabited. The canali, he said, really were canals, supporting a civilization to survive on a dying globe. After Lowell's proclamation, a, a Martian storm struck. In 1897, German writer Kurt Lassowitz brought out the novel Two Planets, which remains obscure in the English-speaking world. It was not translated till 1971 into English, but it was very influential. 
the book which depicts the complex, sometimes violent, first contact between Martians and humans, motivated a generation of German rocketry enthusiasts, including Werner von Braun, who went on to build missiles for the Nazis and then was used by the U.S. Space Agency, NASA, to put a man on the moon in the 1960s. Interesting what inspires some people, eh? Yes, indeed. 1897 also witnessed the magazine serialization of what remains a best-known Martian novel, The War of the Worlds, by H.G. Wells. Wells' book would spawn two movies, released in 52 and 2005, a TV show, uh, 1988 to 1990. I don't know about that one. And the notorious 1938 radio play by Orson Welles, which, by the way, he notes, was not a deliberate hoax. There were actually commercial breaks halfway through that broadcast, but it was so intense it sparked hysteria in parts of the state. And he says, in fairness, a volume edited by Brian Holmsten and Alex Lubertazzi points out that some of the panickers thought what really was happening was a German or Japanese attack. They, they didn't hear the word Martian in there anywhere, I guess. And then, of course, Edgar Rice Burroughs, who was born in 1875, notice the time period in which all these people are in the 1800s, had a Martian crater named after him in recognition of his having written close to a dozen Martian novels. One well-known fan of Edgar Rice Burroughs was another soon-to-be-famous sci-fi author, Ray Bradbury, who you and I, I don't think we like him too much, no, do we? Boring, um, boring. He wrote The Martian Chronicles, which is, quote, one of the most honored books in science fiction. I don't know. I've never liked it. Oh, it's terrible. And the movie, the... Uh, 19, was it 1979 with Rock Hudson? Absolutely yeah. boring. Well, 1930, Hollywood took over, apparently, and they had a whole pile of movies, uh, and including um, or Flight to Mars, 1951, Invaders from Mars, 53, Devil Girl from Mars, 54, Mars Needs Women, mm. Capric that was 67, Capricorn 1, 77. Oh, yes. Remember that. Lobster Man from Mars, a Martian spoof movie, 889, Mars Attacks, which was inspired by bubblegum cards. I didn't know that. Really? That's a funny movie. Yeah, and The Red Planet, 2000. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, all of the above hinge on the possibility of life on Mars, he writes. But in the 1960s, unmanned spacecraft from Earth found an apparent wasteland there, not canals. The writer then cites Carl Sagan and William Hartman, who were both quite involved with NASA's Mariner 9 probe of Mars in the early 70s, while later Sagan insisted in the 1976 Viking mission. And he concludes with this thought. Their efforts led to subsequent forays that have brought us tantalizingly close to some, of, some breakthrough. In 2011, NASA revealed that the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which started work in 2006, had located 21 sites where water may be flowing freely after all. Because water means life, our strange Martian dream continues. <laughs> and that's how he ends. Another great novelist was Jules Verne, who didn't write Martian stories, but influenced both literature and the scientific community of his time, perhaps to this day. He wrote, among others, Five Weeks in a Balloon, 1863. Again, we're in the 1800s. Voyage to the Center of the Earth. Got two versions of that movie, by the way. From the Earth to the Moon, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Mysterious Island, Around the World in 80 Days, and Michael Strogoff. All in the 1800s. Great imagination. And, um, yeah, and apparently uh, the reason, he sort of started science fiction. Mm -hmm. And because uh, they, they described it to their peculiar combination of fantastic detail and plausible scientific explanation. And a new, new form of literature. Right, and he was a great inspiration to H.G. Wells. Per apparently, Verne was also influenced by Victor Hugo. I know Ayn Rand was a big fan of Victor Hugo. And, uh, again, another pioneer of the imagination who has, uh, you know, taken us forward and tried to create something that wasn't there before. I'm going to take a break now, and when we return, I have a fairy tale of my own to tell you. Back after this.
Hello out there, Peabody in here. Anything wrong with the Wayback Machine, Mr. Peabody? Merely changing the fan belt, Chairman. I guess we won't be going back into history then, huh? Oh, on the contrary, my boy, we're all set to invade the city of Paris in the year 1874. Who are we going to meet? The eminent French author, Jules Verne. I belted the fan belt into place, and in a twinkling, we were hurtled back through time and space. The streets of Paris in those days were filled with horse-drawn carriages. Most of them moved along in sprightly fashion, but one was obviously getting nowhere. Giddy up, Monsieur Hulse. That poor man is having trouble, Mr. Peabody. That poor man, Sherman, is Jules Verne. If you do not make with the feet, I shall be forced to deposit you in the nearest glue factory. Uh, trying to go somewhere, Monsieur Verne? You bet your boots, Monsieur. I am off to prove a theory. Chateau theory, Mr. Verne? Men or little one. I am trying to prove that one can go around the world in 80 days. <laughs> if it can be done, then I, I shall write a book about it. It's got to be done, Mr. Peabody. And it shall be done, Sherman, but not in a horse-drawn carriage. I cannot take much more of this. How many days left? Exactly one. But gee, Mr. Peabody, it's impossible to go from New York to Paris in one day. Nothing is impossible. I wasted no time in rushing us to the shores of the Hudson River. Look, a rowing race is about to start. Yes, but not without us. I knew that Yale had the fastest shell in the country and were heavily favored to defeat all competition. It was in this boat that we sat ourselves. Just a moment, you guys can't sit here. Oh, no. How would it look if you threw away your mascot? The Yale mascot is a bulldog. Young man, there's a bit of bulldog in all of us. The race was fairly flew down the Hudson. That's when I took over as coxswain. Stroke, 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 stroke. 24 hours later, we rowed up the River Seine and walked ashore into the streets of Paris. We did it! We went around the world in 80 days! Boom! Now I can go home and write the book. Jules Verne did write the book and earned the plaudits not only of France, but of England as well. In fact, they put him on display in the Tower of London. Really? Really. Day after day, he stood there with a crowd on his head. In the Tower of London, Mr. Peabody? Why, of course, Sherman. That's where they always keep the crown jewels. poetry pals. I'm wearing this Old Mother Hubbard cause today's poem is Old Mother Hubbard. Pretty slick, huh? Old Mother Hubbard went to the cupboard to get her poor dog a bone. But when she got there, the cupboard was bare and so the poor dog got none. Hold it, hold it. You mean after five years of watchdog and I don't get a bone? That's what the poem says. That does it. I'm going on strike. On strike? I'll pull out every pooch from Pottsville of Paducah. Mother Hubbard unfair to canine. But, but... She's anti-dog. No, I'm Mother Hubbard. Unfair! Now wait, I don't have a bone, but will something else do? Like such as what? So she went to the bread box to get him some bread, but as soon as he saw it... You kidding, he said? So she went to the ice box and hauled out a steak. And as soon as he saw it, he started to shake. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. That's okay, huh? Well, it's not a bone, mind you. Well then... It'll do, it'll do! Now, here's your new watchdogging contract. How come it's all tattered on the edge? That? Those are the fringe benefits. <laughs> Labor activity. There you go. Groovy. Got a story for you, Robert. <laughs> Once upon a time. Like the beginning of that? So fair? Yeah. There was a great leader of a great metropolis. Loved by a majority of his subjects, his treasury was in surplus, and the burden on his subjects imposed upon them by the previous leader had lessened greatly. Yet not all was calm in the great metropolis. The city's storytellers, supporter, supportive of the previous leader, told strange, unfathomable stories about the new leader. Stranger still, as the facts behind their stories repeatedly proved to be sadly lacking, false, incomplete, or irrelevant. 
This took a great toll on the great leader, forcing him to take up arms against his accusers, both in the legal courts, where he could win, and in the courts of public opinion, where he was at a disadvantage having to prove a negative, while the storytellers were unaccountable for their stories. Because he was so much like his subjects and so unlike the storytellers, the storytellers told stories that would turn the subjects of Metropolis against its popular leader and cause those subjects to crave even more stories. Over time, stories were told that the great leader was not fit to be a great leader because he had used a dozen sheets of his own official letterhead to privately raise voluntary donations for children in his community. It was a great story, and even though the great leader was publicly chastised for using this letterhead, it caused his subjects to love him even more. Then the storytellers revived an old story that the great leader was charged with assaulting his wife, even though the true story was that it was he and his children who were being threatened by his wife. This, said the storytellers, was merely an inconsistency. Some storytellers, like Warning, can sell you anything, even repeated this old false story continuously long after it had been demonstrated to be untrue. This story, too, even though its untruth was not widely understood, did not affect the love that the subjects of Metropolis felt for their leader. But this only encouraged the storytellers to increase their efforts in promoting their fictions as facts. So the stories told by the storytellers became more dramatic and outrageous, now introducing the ever-popular themes of sex, vice, and gangsters. The great leader was accused of placing his hand on the derriere of a young woman in public in the hopes that he might be charged with a criminal offense, which would give the storytellers even more reason to tell more stories. Few subjects heard the true and verifiable story, told by an eyewitness, that the woman in question had publicly confessed to having made up the whole affair to be able to discredit the great leader in her own political effort to become a great leader. <laughs> but this did not stop the storytellers from making up even more stories, and even this false story is still being, not so much as told, as referred to to this day. So the storytellers, insisting that their latest story was true because they saw it with their own eyes, now accused a great leader of associating with gangsters and even of sharing powerful illicit drugs with them. But what the storytellers saw with their own eyes was just another story, accompanied by pictures told by the gangsters themselves. Those gangsters and their story and the pictures have all now disappeared from the storyteller's story, at least at this point in their story. And even if they were to return, and the great leader did do what they said, would that really have changed the greater story? So where does this story end, Robert? Well, there is no ending to this story because it's really known as the never-ending story. Never, I knew you would say that. <laughs> it's the story about how the majority of Metropolis's storytellers really want to change the story, not tell the story. He who tells the story creates the high story, the history, regardless of its truth or falsehood. The real story is with the audience of the story. Does the audience prefer the true story or the fictional story? It is those who prefer the latter where the real story needs to be told. Why? Because true stories can save your life, and false stories can lead you to your own destruction, even by your own hand. History, the story of all stories, is replete with tragic examples of what happened to those who chose to follow the false and untrue story, even when believed to be true. Too many people still can't separate the fact from the fiction and the stories they choose to follow in life. For many, the message perceived in a story, whether a book, movie, or a video game, is more real to them than what's going on outside the walls of their own home. For the real story behind my fable today, just check out Just Right 291, where we discussed the facts on this. Sorry if you heard this story before, but you'll probably be hearing it again and over and over 
until the story ends, which occurs only when we stop listening. <laughs> Quite That's the fractured it. fairy tale. Got to go for another week. So join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, your cousin is right about that, Mr. Clampett. Beverly Hills is a choice residential area, and lots of millionaires do settle there. Folks like me, huh? <laughs> well, uh... Millionaires. And movie stars, too. Oh, yes, yes. Is Tom Mix there? No. Wait, Mr. Mix is dead. Oh. Oh, yeah. What's the matter with me? Remember Pearl? He got shot at the end of that picture. 